0: Hello, my friend. When you think you made a wise business choice that's fading fast, maybe because it was partly made on impulse or because you were spread too thin or you just didn't have the right conditions necessary for success. Well, you're in good company with a guy named Steve Jobs with a business called Pixar. Now, if you haven't tuned in to the part one of this series, I encourage you to go back and listen. It's episode 152 and it provides essential context to the bombshells that we're about to unveil with Steve Jobs and the Pixar team, the ones they're about to feel as they navigate toward a very narrow pathway to victory. Let's pick right up where we left off with my friend and show producer, PJ Ashaturo. I'm Dr. Nate Sala, and this is a call to leadership.
1: And I just think it's so imperative that we learn from Steve's sort of gutsiness and resolve and trust in his own sort of destiny, if you will when the stakes were high, he didn't take the first offer and he knew sort of the potential. And he kind of played hardball with them saying, we won't take your money if we're having to give you our assets. We just want to partner with you. We'll make this a service for you.
0: Yeah. And what else I love about that is that he was protecting his people. The easy button would have been just to say, wow, we got to deal with Disney. Doesn't matter what it is. We're just going to take it, right? And the team's like, oh, wow, yay. But it's harder to say no we're not going to take any deal, right? Because we're going to protect the integrity of what we're building. It's going to be more difficult, and I think that's imperative to note too, because the cultures at that
1: time of Disney and Pixar could not have been more different, right? You know, and I think a lot of that is a tribute to Steve, just sort of being innovation first, but then Ed really being the heart and soul. I think in many ways of Pixar's culture, I think John Lasseter is the heart, or you know, he was of the foundations of story. But I think, as we'll see, you'll see, you know, kind of in this case of the story, is Ed is I think just a very moral person, and his commitment and integrity to an environment in which people are whole and it fosters sort of their whole individual and gives them a voice and a place could not have been more antithetical to
0: Disney at that time, yeah. where it's very corporate hierarchy, sequel driven, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, his ability to communicate. Is masterful and yeah. it shows in his relationship with Steve because Steve right. was not always the easiest to garner his respect. In fact, he put you in the category one or another category is either a bozo or you were not a bozo. And Jobs looked at camel as a mentor. And it says a lot. It says a lot about their relationship because Steve was the owner in terms of the majority ownership right. stake. Right. But he yeah. still looked up to Catmull because of his ability to lead. I believe that 100% because, you know, I think
1: Steve I think Catmull really personified empathy and I think that was something that Steve was learning at that time in his life, you know. Uh, Catmull says it a number of times he said that. You know, initially all the anecdotes we hear of Steve Jobs is, you know, like that we're familiar with is his hard-headedness and all those things and they said that he mellowed out or his energy levels, you know, I'm be so dogmatic waned as he got older. But he said really he learned empathy. Steve changed. Like The fall from Apple was actually the best thing that
0: ever happened to Steve as a person. And he admitted that himself. Mm -hmm. And so this relationship is developing. And of course, Ed is at the helm of the Pixar division. And I remember very specifically, Steve taking his hands off the wheel, and simply giving the instructions to make it a great movie yeah and so speaking and then on john
1: lasseter you know i think john lasseter had worked on the script for a long time and i would imagine they actually started with toy story because there's sort of this term in animation that's called the uncanny valley where if something looks human-like but it's not It looks very weird. Like if something looks like a stick figure, you're like, oh, it's a person. And then if it look at any of the humans in Toy Story, they look unnerving. They're uncomfortable. So they realized, I think also like they couldn't actually do a movie about humans. It would feel a little too weird. But then there's obviously then the playful sort of, well, I've never heard a story told from the toys point
0: of view. So it was innovative. Right. Well, and it didn't go smoothly, at least for a long time. Of course, as you said, Jobs was hard hitter just as much as Michael um, Eisner. Eisner and blowouts in some of these meetings right and so very two very big egos and duking it out and of course you've got catmull and lassiter in some of these meetings as well and they're like okay what's happening here and disney wanted to run the show they did yeah and even with the script
1: And actually, Disney told them, you know, like Andy's kind of in the first draft of Toy Story, Andy's really goofy and he's silly and he's kind of not taken seriously. So Disney told them, we want more of a gritty, darker Andy. And then they changed the script to they want a gritty, darker Woody. And so the second draft of the script they brought back was Woody like being so jealous of Buzz that he threw him out the window And he was like the most unsympathetic character and Disney shut the production down that we're saying, we're not giving you any more money until you fix this. And like John was like, if you just let us trust our instinct, we wouldn't have done that. But then for like three months, like all they did was worked on the story. And then they kind of came back with actually this really good synthesis because I think Woody is a, a really complex character in that he's really likable. He's charming. He falls, sort of his Achilles heel, was he's jealous because he didn't have to make space before for right. being second best. And yeah. that's why it's relatable. That's the heart of the film.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I love how there was real true possibility that this was not going to happen at all. If Disney shuts the production down because they're not satisfied with the output, it's over. Yeah. Just think about the stress. I mean, you're in filmmaking. Imagine. Oh, yeah. Dude, <laughs> the amount of parallels, like,
1: literally originally when i started making the movie you know i keep saying the movie we're working on the script that i wrote you know two years ago was a live action movie and then due to industry factors and just sort of new opportunities it's worked out better to shift to an animated tv show which is totally out of my forte you know i've been a live action filmmaker for you know 15 years and it's crazy to kind of go through a lot of these parallel things with sort of figuring out the heart of the story, what's the animation process and then managing sort
0: of to some degree. So this has been a lifeline, this book. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the and, midst of this. and he's such an incredible writer too. I mean, yes. Catmull really, he's so eloquent in his writing. And that's, I think part of like just drilling down to creativity because creativity by nature is curious about the possibilities to overcome any obstacle. Mm. And so, you know, where the obstacle with Disney is, there's also creativity. To say, well, let's find a way, and that's the heart of creativity: is let's find a way. And we often will maybe dismiss the possibilities when we are thinking too narrowly. Yeah, I think we do, and
1: I think we think of these stories and we see all the successes and we discount the self doubt and failures. And then when we experience the same things in our life, we think like we're an anomaly or we're an imposter because we're having all these problems. We had the visceral reaction to pain in our own lives, but we don't obviously know the pain of and self doubt of someone like Steve Jobs. You know, we just
0: see the pleasure and the exultancy of them. Right. Yeah. No, 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 that's it. And so let's see here. We're in the midst of this production, and what's happening with Ed is we're still selling these hardware, right? We're still. What I think happened is when they started to strike the deal with
1: Disney and sort of begin production on it, I think they realized that they need to actually shut down the hardware division and go all in Mm -hmm. on this sort of new endeavor. And Steve, to his credit, sort of on a dime, remember, I mean, at this point, he had sunk 50, 70 million dollars into, you know, a lot of this on a dime. Steve said, we're dropping, you know, sort of the old business model and we're going all in on really Ed's dream that he had since he was a kid of making an animated feature with computers one of my favorite details of the whole book was steve's foresight into the kind of next plays you know we talk about almost like game of thrones like politics slash sort of strategy in this so here's what steve jobs predicted he predicted that toy story would be a success and a phenomenal success so much of his success that their current partnership and deal was that i'm not sure the specifics of it but basically Disney would fund them the money and then they would get a portion of the proceeds. But I think their portion of the proceeds on Toy Story was relatively small to where it was mostly in Disney's favor because obviously Disney's investing and they're doing the distribution. So Jobs said there's an opportunity for us to be 50 50 partners with Disney on subsequent feels because he knew that if Toy Story was a success, Pixar would become a threat. Truly, if Toy Story became a huge hit and Disney only has a three-picture deal with them, then afterwards, Toy Story could be their rival and eventually oust Disney. So Eisner, of course, would be incentivized to work with them on creating a deal. So the only way they could get a 50-50 partnership going forward is if they partnered up half of the cash it takes to produce these movies. And these movies, I'm not sure the exact cost, but, you know, it's in the tens of millions, probably 30 plus for Toy Story,
0: probably right. probably more in the 50. I mean, these days it's like 150. Which they didn't have. Which they did not have. Enter Lawrence Levy, who Steve recruited, who he knew from the old Apple days, and to work on the IPO. Correct. So he knew if I can make a successful IPO... Then I can get the cash, leverage the relationship, and be on an equal playing field with Disney. However, they had one major issue. They had no market value. I mean, look, they're hemorrhaging cash, never had a profitable year. They're attempting to get into a market that's been dominated by one player who has only produced a handful of films at the level Toy Story would have to be Mm -hmm. for it to reach the kind of IPO is necessary to leverage the cash. It really was. And here's what's even
1: crazier is, you know, sometimes we think of IPOs as like everything moves, talk goes fast today's day and age because of the Internet. But back then in the you know 90s, and this would be 95 when Toy Story would release and they would IPO, Steve met with companies and investors months yes. ahead of time to talk with them about securing
0: commitments towards So when they go launch, they put up the money. Yes. What's really fascinating, any of our audience refers back to our last conversation that we had on our last episode together. We talked about great leaders or lifelong learners. And so he and Jobs and Levy went to the library and checked out a book on the movie industry and all the mechanics of how to create a company that was a player in the movie industry and read it cover to cover, very dry book, they said, huh. and then begun to deconstruct the concepts in that to create the offering to the investors when they went from, quote unquote, door to door to different investors to show them what was cooking at Pixar. Wow. So it was very guerrilla. Yeah. Very granular. Right. This is a CEO. That's what's so funny is it's
1: like they visited the high net worth individuals, probably funds to some degree too. But Steve, who still is a bit of, you know, iconoclast, he'd fallen, you know, his celebrity hadn't risen sort of out of his fall. He's pitching in person, all these private investors for months. Yeah. Crazy. And I don't think they had the portability to showcase the film. Right. So it's all on Steve, really to
0: articulate and win and woo these investors yeah. to this IPO. Yeah. Crazy. All the time as this is happening in the background, and I guess you tell me what the proper language for this is, mm-hmm. but where they can show parts of the black and white sort of sketches or scenes. He had VCR recordings of those. Right. He was inviting friends over to his house right. so they can see it because he was so excited yep. about what was happening here. So th- this is also important to know because our enthusiasm as business leaders is contagious. Right. Our lack of enthusiasm is equally as contagious. Mm.
1: I think that's the most understated sort of aspect of leadership is passion, excitement, which of course stems from curiosity, right? It's like sinking our teeth. It's like a secret that we found. And really back when you know, some of my favorite kind of pastor figures too are the ones who are the most actually sort of passionate they were curious it was like there was a question that they couldn't answer and I think that's honestly just a great mark of all communicators it's not even just kind of leaders in a business it's that I've had some quest I have to go on but I found the answer and I'm bringing this sort of back to the village and now I'm acting as a mentor to you who begins your quest. And I think this can help you on your quest. That's the story brand journey
0: too, right? And it has to be special. Mm -hmm. And when I say special, it has to be set apart, right? So that's part of this innovation is setting yourself apart to stand out in the crowd and getting others excited along with you about this new iteration of the whole journey. And I think that's what's happening at Pixar. And so unpack a little bit about how, this cgi or this you know computer graphic imaging is different than traditional animation at the time yeah i mean it's interesting in that most
1: animation prior to pixar was hand drawn and how the animation process goes kind of on a layman's terms is you have a key sort of animator who creates sort of let's say there's a shot sequence so it's like andy picks up woody and he puts him down in another place So the key animator creates frame one from that sequence and then halfway through and then the ending one. So then there's an in-betweener, which kind of fills in sort of the details, which that's less skilled than sort of the main one. But what's really interesting about computer animation, obviously, is that they're pre-building models and these models stay consistent throughout. So there's really almost no divergence of quality as far as like characters and backgrounds and all those sort of things. It's smoother. And really the lighting conditions and sort of it's I think it feels more real, more three dimensional, obviously, yeah. because the techniques they can do is just unparalleled with water effects, waterfalls, and really, in a sense, productions should be ideally cheaper and faster as a result of this.
0: And so if you think about how Steve and Catmull and Lasseter envision this, mm-hmm. it's really a Carrying forward of the torch that you talk about innovation that Disney set forth seventy five years earlier right. with his Alice comedies or with the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit yeah. or Steamboat Mickey right yeah. and equally interesting is that they were also born out of some trial or tragedy in moving forward they needed this Pixar needed this Disney needed Steamboat Willie and so of course, you know, what is the old saying, right? Necessity is the mother of invention, right? And so this is another piece to the conversation that I think it's important to share is that what are we doing to continue to carry that torch forward in an industry that we're super passionate about? I mean, Jobs felt the same way about the tech industry and Silicon Valley. And he actually visited with the pioneers of Silicon Valley and said that he wanted to be a part of the next generation that would move progress forward and so steve was a deeply personal leader and
1: i think that's what's really interesting too is that brian bird who's the director of iron giants if you remember that movie you Mm -hmm. know for i don't know paramount or something like that back in the day he didn't offer to work at warner brothers around the time he had an offer to work at pixar Warner Brothers, they're huge, and Pixar, you know, sort of only had one or two films at this point, but what struck him, the difference, is that Warner Brothers hadn't got back to him in a few weeks, and when Steve Jobs, like, at this point, he's back in Apple, he calls him, and he says, just introduce himself and all that kind of stuff, and he's like, Ed told me about Martha, your wife, and you got two kids, just want to say that's wonderful, you ever want to come over and have dinner sometime, to would be a delight to me. He said, like, I don't even know what Warner Brothers deal is, but I don't even care because if I get this level of like intentionality Mm -hmm. with Pixar, it's going to be a far better place to work. Wow. And they continue that because even with Toy Story, I think Steve Jobs personally called Tim Allen Mm -hmm. and Tom Hanks to get them on the film.
0: Yeah. Which is another, again, this is a repeat of what Walt was doing to get people on Mary Poppins or get people in any one of his movies. He was personally involved in the recruitment aspect of these a players these key people right and i think that speaks to us today and we've got to get out of our ivory tower Mm -hmm. and we've got to get on the street and get involved in whatever capacity our genius zone best lends us to reaching our goals as a team yeah yeah i think that's imperative i also think it goes to
1: show that like the human connection the human touch i think because most people oftentimes are so not lazy but like We take it for granted. And so it stands out all the more when we do that personal touch. Like actually how we sort of got a callback from our parent company is because I was at this big crypto conference and I noticed that everyone was just dropping off business cards at their table. And I was like, you know what? That just seems so lame. I'm going to bring a bunch of food. So I just, I'd like dropped all the conference stuff. And for like, I went out across town, got insane amount of jugs of water, Cuban sandwiches all these kind of stuff and I brought back and I just tried to hand it out to each individual team member shake their hand let them know you know love what they're doing would love to connect sometime and sure enough you know they call me a month or so later saying I don't remember anyone I didn't call them back
0: but I remember the water Mm -hmm. it makes a difference yeah stand out in the crowd yeah and that's ultimately what Pixar was attempting to do Mm -hmm. which was again it was a monumental feat right your first time out by (laughs) the way <laughs> no track record in making movies right in the release with disney so disney had a lot to yeah. risk too oh yeah know, to oh i mean yeah i mean fair. with snow white it was same thing i mean it was the first actually full-length animated movie ever that's crazy yeah and knocked it out of the park but was it stressful yes were there tons of naysayers absolutely right but the approach of creativity i mean even the hand drawing of how the body movements were and studying real people and Mm -hmm. how they moved and his animators and teaching them and being involved in that process very directly right and encouragingly and helping and getting the right i mean he had to get his brother to help get the money i mean there's all kinds of things going on right to help make this real yeah
1: i see this at the risk of sounding sometimes too spiritual i see that every film is a prayer in the sense of i think that all of it's like a hope for the world because we have a message kind of embedded in every film but then i think that every film that actually gets made is a miracle mm-hmm. because there's a thousand factors that are, have to go right that are entirely outside your control yeah. and it's the same way in business too like we think oftentimes you know we hear the term which i hate to be honest everything is self-made billionaire right. there are no self-made millionaires like no one exists in a silo no one raised themselves no one you know, had all like we're affected by all these outcomes. We can't quantify. And another term I hear is hindsight's 2020. It's not, we don't know. (laughs) We have a, through a foggy mirror, we see the past, much less the present we see so little. And so I think that's where it's just all about gratitude for the confluence of stars aligning to get us to the very moment in which we are. And to hope that that just kind of continues in the future if we continue to set our mind to it and work really hard on yeah. this. Yeah.
0: And that's exactly what's happening in 1995. So, setting the stage for what's going on. So, now it Toy Story releases. Yeah. And it's a number one box office hit. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it's exceeded expectations. At the same time, Steve Jobs is in a room and getting ready to do the initial public offering because that was the deal right if toy story was a hit they launched the ipo see what happens and
1: wisely they staged it a week after to kind of let the sort of news and hype Mm -hmm. and clout of the film so really great timing on there and it ipos for 140 million dollars which was the biggest ipo of 1995. yeah
0: crazy yeah so He walks into a room next door and makes one phone call. Yeah. Yeah. He makes a phone call to his buddy, the Oracle owner and Larry Ellison and says just three words. I did it. (laughs) (laughs) And what he was saying was he became a billionaire. Yeah. That's when he became a billionaire with the ownership of the stock. It wasn't Apple. Huh. That made him a billionaire. Yeah. Now, of course, later we learned that Pixar made him a multi-billionaire when Disney buys them, but we can talk about that in another episode, <laughs> <laughs> which made him the largest shareholder in Disney
1: single-handedly. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They bought it for $7 billion later, all because, you know, going back, he didn't cave in the first deal. Uh-huh. If he caved in that first deal, they would have just absorbed them slowly. Yeah. yeah. Or if Microsoft would have bought them or if he sold for whatever even 90 million dollars just to get out of debt and have a few bucks left over on a seven-year journey it just reminds me of like what if you fail is like the question we hear all the time as entrepreneurs but i think the question that needs to haunt us even more is what if we
0: succeed well my friend i am so thrilled that you joined me on this episode of a call to leadership And before you go to the next episode, especially if you're binge listening, take a moment. I would love to get your honest review right here on your screen. Your feedback is so important. It helps the podcast. It encourages me and it helps me. It helps me to give you more and more and more value. So I can't wait to read your review. I can't wait to be with you on the next episode. I'm Dr. Nate Sala. This is a call to leadership.